Okay, we are live. Oh, oh shoot. I knew Good it. job. Good job. Well I done. knew it. I, know. I, I will confirm that we are live because remember I'm the uh, Ryan Light. Ryan, so. you sound kind of sick. Are you yeah, okay? You, are you all right? <laughs> Is this a new strain of COVID that changes your voice? Thanks. So, John, what's our offer for Twitter? Did we submit one? <laughs> we should have. <laughs> At this point, I'm sure the company would have accepted it. <laughs> did, did, did we, did we submit a random dude in his basement <laughs> or some Coogan and some steaks? We can't, we, we can't give you 45 billion. We can give you a few heads of cattle, some hills, <laughs> hills up in the hills. And I, I just keep, you know, you guys just keep doing what you're doing. There's yeah. a really interesting thread where one of the guys that worked for content moderation on Twitter talked about how hard it is uh, to moderate content automatically. And I'm not envious just, of that. It was like oh, 12, no. 13 tweets, yeah. and it just sounded like a nightmare to me. And I like yeah. Elon Musk is like, I got this covered. Like, hold my beer. Good. Yeah, that'll go. I, I well. guess. Yeah, I guess we can jump into that as uh, if you guys want to get started. started. So, we have, no, we haven't no, shown we the get... guy with the broken finger. Yeah. Oh, right there. Is, that, is, that, is that actually what's in the video? Broken finger. I I called that out, and then everyone started noticing it. Like his ring finger, it. or his or her ring finger, is very clearly deformed. What are we talking about? I can't. <laughs> the intro video. The intro video. Oh, the, the hand thing? Yeah. Really? yeah. Is it your hand, John? Did you break your hand? Did no, you break your hand? And was this a reenactment? Yeah. Somebody <laughs> was like, we need to take a picture of your hand with your fingerprints. I'm like, no. <laughs> but it's for the news. Okay. No, no, no. Oh, true. oh, oh, oh it's oh, it. It goes everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I'll do anything. Break my hand and all. <laughs> oh, man. Hello and welcome to another edition of Black Hills Information Security, talking about news. This particular episode is brought to you by Black Hills Information Security, Security Operations Center. Yes, if you need to get hacked, fear you've been hacked, or would like to prevent your company from being hacked, call BHIS. We're here for all your hacking needs. It is also brought to you by Anti-Siphon InfoSec Training. Yes, we do training. Check it out. We have tons of really cool classes on demand, and we are also the home of Pay What You Can. And also, I've been told many, many, many times I need to do this and I suck at it. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button because apparently something magical happens. And if we have you do that and you do that, apparently we'll be worth enough money to where we could buy Twitter back from Elon Musk at some point. I don't know. My concept of the entire internet and how YouTube works all comes from Mr. Beast. You're, so, you're all going to need to yeah. ring the bell really hard. Okay, lots. <laughs> We're gonna lots, lots of times time for that. Um, but a couple of things I do want to talk about. That finger is clearly broken. It is. On yes. the intro, or it's an alien. I told That's you. Those two things. I cannot unsee it now. And the other thing I would like to do, if we could, let's start talking about uh, Twitter and how, um, how Corey was wrong. Corey, do you want to explain to us... <laughs> Your, your theory of what was going to happen and then all that thing that you predicted in fact did not come to pass it didn't so what had happened was yes. uh <laughs> basically elon musk was like hey i'm gonna buy twitter and twitter was like no and then they were like yeah actually okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, crucial step. elon musk's like here's a bucket full of billions and they're like right thank you 
Right. Yeah. So basically, we talked about this on the last show, and I kind of anyone who's been watching the show for long enough knows that I am always wrong, or at least most of the time. <laughs> um, but I, I just didn't see it happening, mainly because I guess I kind of there's a difference between like drunk tweeting, I'm going to buy Twitter and like actually showing Twitter, I have $45 billion sitting that's, in a bank account ready call, to. That's what we call a bender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and from my perspective, I mean, don't get me wrong. Billionaires can do crazy things for money or, you know, their, their money is so vast. They can do insane things that make no sense. But I still had in my, you know, I don't know why I think this way, but I still kind of use common sense to approach the world. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, so that's happening. Probably they said they're, you know, that now that he's proved he's actually good for it and not just on a extended vendor. Yeah, they're actually uh, he, in the back counting the money right now. The, yeah, they're actually they're like, like wow. the, the bricks are being moved from <laughs> one bank account to another. It's actually gold still. Gold <laughs> bullion, which, yeah. you know, in South Africa, they call it Kugran. So, oh. so, which I asked John in the pre-show, you know, what did we offer when we, you know, did, 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 did we, did, did we try at least? Did we yeah. even put our name in the hat? We should have, like, because <laughs> they would have accepted any corporate overlords other than Elon Musk at this point. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, I'll does say, anyone know, what's his plan? Like, I, I can't imagine. Well, he said he wants to open source stuff. We talked about the open sourcing of the algorithm last week, which just seems this, this like a terrible like idea. This is all like Cybertruck here. This is everything they said is probably not going to happen. They're sending the $48 billion through Tornado Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> that's I, uh, okay that's so, possible so one of the things is he keeps talking about there needs to be more freedom on the platform and we were talking about earlier there's been a bunch of threads talking about how hard it is to do content moderation on these platforms at scale yeah and i think it's a lot more difficult than elon thinks it is right i i, I think it's a very hard thing and um this this is we've talked about it many times on the show it isn't just topical it's damn important because if these platforms get this stuff wrong, genocide happens in countries. And we've seen that with Facebook. So this is kind of, we joke about it, but honestly, this is something that we really, really need to figure out, ultimately. I mean, so, so do you think Trump offered him a certain chunk if he gets unbanned? I, <laughs> does Trump even have enough money to keep him interested? <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that's a good point. You're talking about a big fish in a little pond versus an actual big fish. Actual, yeah, I mean, like, I mean in right. the biggest pond. So, so I mean, it, I guess, yeah, more freedom. I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of ironic. It's like I spent $45 billion to have an entire social media company that I own that everyone's constantly tweeting at me that they hate me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you are paying $45 billion to get something you can get for free, which is everyone hates you. I mean, that's free. <laughs> and that's literally what he's buying. But I think he's used to everyone hating him. Here, here's, my, here's my question. Do we need a more open, uh, you know, free speech Twitter? Is, is Twitter no. not free speech enough? Is, is that the problem? Is, no, is that... have you seen 4chan or yeah, any other unmoderated platforms that you can go that even, like... Even Frederick Brennan and 4chan was like, I went too far and this was way too open. And <laughs> I don't know if y'all have seen, the, there's like a QAnon documentary on HBO mm. where they interview frederick a lot and he's talking about like the early days of 4chan and how they really were like fully hands-off zero moderation anything goes and how that led to things like the christchurch shooting and all these other sorts of like you mm -hmm. know mass casualties and he was like even i was like no we messed up and misinformation right like twitter pretty heavily motivates like the covid stuff and climate change and stuff like that so yeah 
I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we know that it can influence presidential elections. We know. I mean, I guess if it's completely open, is it just going to be Kim Jong Un tweeting at Trump saying, you know, do you want to send nukes? And Trump's like, yes, I do. So that's a war now. Like, is that how it works? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I don't know what the end game is here, is but there, I, I feel like looking at it cynically, there has to be something he wants that isn't just like making Twitter better. I feel like there's something he's after here. I don't know what it is. Maybe, Maybe mining the data, two. mining it some, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I honestly, I don't know. You know what? We're trying, to, we're trying to think, you know, what goes on in the inside of someone's brain that has more money than anybody else on the face of the planet and has had a tremendous amount of money for a long time. And I, I think that that's just bad. We shouldn't do that. And because we're going to make predictions and we're going to be wrong. And it's not just going to be Corey. Okay? <laughs> not um, going to just be Corey. I, I predict that he's going to get bored with it very quickly once it becomes something that is work. And it's not cool work like rocket ships, digging tunnels, and building really fast cars. And once it becomes work and he has to go testify before Congress and say, why was your platform used in this, in this fashion? It's going to be like, F this. I'm out. This isn't fun. And I don't know how he thinks that this is going to fun at all all right so all right so we got to move on let's actually talk about some security stories speaking of people that are wrong periodically um there's a really great story uh from brian krebs krebs on security and he was basically talking about the t-mobile breach uh by by lapsus and also a lot of the messages on the internal team um where they were sharing access and how they got access and it's actually it's really fascinating, right? Um, whenever people are talking about getting access to T-Mobile, one of the things about this particular breach that's interesting to me is the main goal of many of the people in this particular hacker ring that was ran by a 17-year-old. Let's keep that in mind. Um, some of the most, like, the, the rest of the team was really interested in SIM swapping. Um, and for those of you that don't know, SIM swapping is basically where I can take my phone and then transfer your phone number to my phone, and then I can get your text messages and things like for two-factor authentication. So they were very interested in that. And apparently at one point, the 17-year-old cut their team off from VPN access, and apparently that made them mad. But they got access to a ton of source code. And the reason why I brought this story up, right, it's topical, right? Got a question, does getting access to source code matter? as much today as it did, like, say, in 2000, because this is one of those, I just brought up Brian Krebs, there's a bunch of people that are reporting on this, but there's a lot of people that are freaking out, they're like, oh my god, the source code has been leaked, and some people could write zero days for it. What do you all think about that? Is source code as big of a deal today as it was back in, like, 2000, 2003, 2005 timeframe? Now it's just open source, you know, secure coding review, secure audit. Yeah. So I, I guess one perspective we could look at it from is in the world of cryptocurrency, where everything is pretty much wide open code wise, and it still gets exploited relentlessly for, you know, two to seven hundred million dollars a week or something. So I guess like the closed and open nature of the source code doesn't to me doesn't make a huge difference. That being said, I would love like the source code for Defender, you know, just like <laughs> find me the holes, find me the stuff where it's like. That, folder if folder name equals equals windows 95 <laughs> do not scan or what I, like there's probably you know there's probably stuff like that where it's just Steve Palmer's stash it's like oh 
<laughs> homework folder. Do not scan. Do not scan Bomber's folder. <laughs> so, Ralph, Ben, what are your th- thoughts on source code? I think it matters, but only like a little bit, right? Like it's useful to have that. But I mean, what you can actually do with it really is kind of up in the air, right? Like you, you, you don't, I, I don't know. I don't really think you gain as much ground and maybe as people believe, right? I, I think there's probably some vulnerabilities there, but that doesn't mean there is. Like it's not inherent that now that you can see the source code that there's totally, yeah. you know, 45 zero days that are going to exist in this, you know. But I mean, mostly what they're going to do is just see a bunch of copy pasta from Stack Overflow, you know? That's what they're going to see. <laughs> I mean, I do think it is scary if you're like, an executive at T-Mobile, just hearing the phrase that like your company's source code has been completely compromised. If you don't have the technical literacy to like have worked on the source code or know what the implications could be, it sounds much more terrifying. But I think Ralph's probably right that unless you spend a lot of time doing like research and development on this code, like you're less likely to find low hanging fruit. The the other thing too is like people usually care about source code so you don't go make that same thing and then sell it more than it is like, oh, if they have the source code, then they're going to know all of my secret security yeah. flaws. It's it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's a business yeah. asset. It's intellectual property. Yeah. This is it, boys. We're creating our own cell phone company. It's like, no, that's not, <laughs> yeah. not going to happen. Not mobile That's the name. Onto AWS. So for me, a couple of things. One, BHIS has done source code reviews and it's always interesting, like when the company brings us out, right? There's like, you know, you're not allowed to have network connectivity where the source code is. They bring you into a room. The laptops are set up with the source code like and the, the running code. There's usually no air conditioning. It's like a janitor's closet that they hollowed out. And, you know, if you want out, you've got to do the secret knock to get out. And then while you're walking around, you like look and like, like all the developers have all their source code up on GitHub. And you're like, well, God damn it. So it's weird. We still have this idea that if you get the source, you're going to be able to write zero days, right? But here's the thing. Have you ever tried to read somebody else's code? It's miserable, right? It's absolutely miserable to read someone else's code. It's not like you're just going to read it and automatically be like, well, the zero days right here. <laughs> it's um, commented. <laughs> yeah, and it's commented. Of course, I got to be honest, still to this day, when I get access to source code, especially if it's like C, I'll like, you know, you know, control F, look for like get S. And it's like, oh God, they're still using it. Um, so I don't know, mileage may vary in that. Oh. I feel like at the end of the day, it's it just comes down to what was the source code? I mean, I guess you could, it's kind of like a, it's a split from like a vulnerability perspective because on one hand, you might be able to churn through like run app scan or any other static code analysis tool on this code and find a bunch of vulnerabilities way faster than you could if you were just running, you know, scans against a live application or or whatever however yeah. that that's kind of like you have to connect all the dots and and you might as well just do like bug bounty analysis stuff on the other side to see how the live app is i mean it's hard enough if you've compromised an app server to figure out which which local directory of the code is actually running modify mm-hmm. it and then make sure the application is using the modified code to you know as an example or just finding the code that's actually running, you know, it might not reflect if they just did git pull everything, you know, it's like, might not yeah. be everything. I but. have one last thing to say. We already have an example of this and that's Android and uh, Apple, right? The Android operating system being open source and the Apple operating system being closed source. And there's more vulnerabilities for the Apple one, for, coincidentally, like it's like, or at least, at least, at least on par, but there's just so much more financial incentive but, for the other I, one, you know? 
I, 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 you know, and there'd be some people that are in that mobile development space that would like to argue. It's like, well, well wait, let's look at the vulnerabilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think your point is valid. It's not like one is exponentially more yes. secure yes. than that. That's, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. You, or the Linux kernel versus Windows or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially so. at this stage. Mm -hmm. But that leads me to the next story. Um, Security Magazine had a wonderful little article that said that there were more zero-day exploits used in 2021 um, than at any other point in history. This is not a repeat from 2020, 2019, 2018, 2017, or any years going all the way back to 1999. Um, but I think what this shows is not all of these applications had their source code leaked. You know, There's a whole bunch of ways, You know, whenever you're looking at trying to find vulnerabilities with live analysis using fuzzing techniques, um, static analysis, and then also looking at like modern cloud infrastructure, where it can be something as simple as a misconfiguration or abusing an existing API to make it work and do something that it didn't intend. It's, it's interesting to me because the concept of what an exploit is, is changing dramatically, right? It, like I made a joke about get S and I know that there's some younger people that were like diving to the internet. They're like, what's gets or get S, SN string copy, F string copy, any of those different functions, print F, SN, look, the idea of like when I came up, whenever I was working with standard-based heap overflows and buffer overflow attacks, and what you're looking at now with like cloud infrastructure, cryptocurrency, um, you know, exchanges and all that, it's a completely different ballgame whenever you're looking at exploits as they exist today than it was a few years ago. Now, why do you think that we're seeing this continued climb of zero days? Is it things are just more insecure or what, what's... What do you all think is driving this constant trend for more Money. and more zero days being used? Money. Money. I think that getting paid to sell zero days or, you know, that ecosystem behind that. that that's just my, that's my uh, opinion on that. But I think that there's more financial incentive now to... Well, um, okay, wait. But, you know, there's financial incentive for a variety of ways to gain access to an environment, right? Mm -hmm. Using existing exploits, going after spear phishing and gaining sure. access to users... Money is always that prime factor that's driving absolutely everything. W what is it about zero days that we think is actually driving that? Like, why are we seeing this well, number? Continuing to well, that's what I'm saying, though. I think that the market, right, the buyer, the person who would buy the zero day exists and they're willing to pay more. The, the more of them exist willing to pay high levels of money for a zero day, not for just already access to some system, right? Or whatever. Some, you know, I already know that they misconfigured. <laughs> and yet we have Lap Lapsus, which was like one of the most successful hacking groups. And they literally were just buying, you know, access on the Russian underground. Like, yeah. Well, it's yeah, cheaper than zero days. Uh, they're out, they're out marketed. They're out marketed. There's countries yeah. and other things that are buying all the zero days up and they're raising the price because supply and demand. And so they had to go with the cheaper route, which is just paying someone who works there. <laughs> that's that's you know some of the circles that i've worked with in the government you know whenever they're like well you're going to get access to this network i'm like how in the hell are you guys going to get suitcase full of money man it works every <laughs> yeah. time. Uh, i would say i mean i'm going to come in a little bit from left field and say that number one the reason there was more zero days is because there's just more hacking in 2021 than ever right i mean it's like it's like saying like there was more money in the world in 2021 than there ever was before it's like yeah we just like create money over time but also, um, I, I do think it, there are some issues with the way that responsible disclosure is happening now. And I feel like that's going to lead to a lot of 
bugs being labeled zero days when they're just dropped on like a Microsoft POC is just dropped on GitHub because it wasn't worth dealing with Microsoft. Like that's going to increase the numbers exponentially of how many zero days are being exploited, in my opinion. But yeah, and this is one of those things we've been talking about for years. You know, there's this pendulum where if you if like I'm going to go back to like, you know, whenever we work with companies and we share vulnerabilities with those companies. Some companies are great. They're just like, great, we're going to get this fixed. Appreciate it. And they'll send out a t-shirt, maybe send some money to the security researcher at BHS. And other companies are like, well, we need, we demand a meeting. We, we, we demand that there's going to be proof of concept. Um, we want you to sign all these legal non-disclosure agreements. And I, I don't know if I've said it recently. If you've ever found a vulnerability in something and you're talking to a company, never, ever, ever sign a non-disclosure agreement with them. Ever. And the main reason for that is if that vulnerability is discovered by someone else and released anonymously, they're coming back on you. There's no advantage for you doing that. And John, I mean, um, how many t-shirts do you have to send somebody to make up for that million dollars they're normally going to make disclosing this vulnerability or whatever, you know? And so. there is, there's stuff, <laughs> right? There's, well, I mean, yeah, that's in a traditional security. They're like, oh, best we can do is like 10K for a bug. It's not a critical bug. Meanwhile, in cryptocurrency, they're like, Here's a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, like, uh, like it's uh, crazy. The difference, the, the difference between companies that are in the cryptocurrency space and their bug bounty payouts versus like Microsoft, which is like fortune five or whatever. It's absolutely insane. Well, companies don't value it enough, in my opinion. But do you think that that's going to undermine the whole entire bug bounty program? Because I've wondered that exact thing. Like there's people that find these amazing vulnerabilities and they're getting like $5,000 or $1,337. You know, it's like, <laughs> where did they come up with that number? <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, I mean, to, to pull an analogy it, to me, it's just like drugs. If drugs, if it's, if it's worth $10 million to bring cocaine across the border, it's going to happen. If it's worth five bucks, no one's going to bother. It's like, yeah. you need to, you need to win this battle against vulnerabilities on an economic level. Like, okay, let's, let's be Microsoft. Oh. And instead of, People literally drop Microsoft exploits on GitHub because it isn't worth going through Microsoft. Like to me, it's like that's a problem in my opinion. I mean, obviously there's one company, but and lots of companies have bug bounties, etc. But you have is, to be willing to. It's a market. Vulnerabilities one, are a market. Who is that one lady? Um, I want to say a box something escaper, where she was literally yeah, it was sandbox escaper sandbox escaper where she was literally releasing you know, zero days for Microsoft on GitHub, like exactly like you said. And she would go on Twitter and basically be like, it ain't worth it. It ain't worth the headache. Here it is. And she would like produce videos and all those different things. But then we, you know, we, we haven't talked about uh, like NSO group or any of those groups yet. But seriously, you know that they're paying absolute top premium dollar for many of these different exploits as they come up. And if you're looking at the economies, it's like you can go to Hacker One or Bug Crowd and get paid two thousand dollars, fight back and forth it's with the giving you like one skittle. What's that? <laughs> They're giving you like one skittle where you you know you could go sell it for literally like a whole candy truck. You know, it's yeah. It's I mean, obviously, like there are some outliers like Pwn to Own handed out over one point two million last year, which is like That's one of the not big. Very much. It's really? not, but it's better than a T-shirt. You know, like you're right. <laughs> I mean, it, you're right. I mean, even now, like if you have a, a zero click or one click uh, Windows exploit that's worth millions, no one's getting paid a millions in bug bounties. Like it's just not happening. It's, so I, except for in cryptocurrency where that's like the minimum. And oftentimes you see <laughs> they're like negotiating like, 
we have four hundred million dollars. You can have half of it if you give it back. Like seriously. <laughs> um, so it's okay. Um, we'll make more. We'll make more. It's <laughs> right. amazing what you can do. That's with this. that's fair because once they go to liquidate those coins, oftentimes they're worth less. But I definitely think it's. I think it's a cost thing. If you're a CEO and you're going to the board, hey, uh, we need to fund this bug bounty program for $20 million. It's like, how come our guys can't find this? Well, you know, how come BHIS can't find this? Like, it's 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 tough. Well, I get I'm it. It's it. a tough sell. Quantity has a quality all its own, right? right? With the amount of eyes that you get on this stuff. Yeah, and you might, you might save 25 million yeah. if you pay 2 mil for the bug, you know? So... Um, so here's a question. You guys know a lot more about like the crypto, like payouts and things like that. Do you feel like that market and the fact that they pay out those ridiculous amounts to the people that find these vulnerabilities, does that have anything to do with the fact? And I'm wondering, does it have anything at all to do with the fact that that entire marketplace was stood up completely outside of the security community? where the security community is kind of quantifying exactly what a bug is worth and how much it should be paid and these are the groups of people that do this stuff. And you're looking at the people in the crypto world and the security people make fun of the crypto world all the time, right? They're constantly mm -hmm. making fun of it. And that's stupid because that's a huge marketplace where you're going to make money as a firm at some point mm -hmm. in the future. But as far as like the payouts, do you think that those companies are paying out because one, they see that level of value and two, because they've not been exposed like you know you can get this for cheaper <laughs> i think I, they don't have they don't have a legacy they don't have like a you know if you're microsoft you're like we've never paid more than twenty thousand for a bug we can't just hand out a hundred million <laughs> like like there's no like there's no legacy but also i think in my opinion the biggest difference is you can absolutely quantify the vulnerabilities cost yeah. and yeah. and benefit if i can and you know, I, if I can say like, I could steal your assets, you know how much that's worth and you're willing to pay a chunk or, of that versus yeah. if or, I say I have a zero day bug. Oh, well, we have Defender. You can't hack it with that. Yeah, so it's, it's worth zero. It's only one piece of a bigger puzzle. You'll never get our money. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, but you, also but, they are making the money. So keep that. Like, they, <laughs> they are making the assets. Like you said, John, they can make more. Some Sometimes there are different cases, but yeah, I think also the the whole saying we talk about it all the time code is law they say that in the crypto space all the time if the if the code said i could steal the money i could steal the money so i think there's a difference in the way well, that people approach it that oh well you were willing to you know not steal the money that's worth a lot yeah. versus in crypto or in cybersecurity it's like how'd you even get the code we well, we, we don't need that on a shirt too a bhis shirt code is law <laughs> yeah i like it. yeah it, obviously it's not people go to jail but um <laughs> well but okay, it is but that gets into the smart contract realm right the smart contract allowed it right for sure no you still sure. go to jail i, I don't Probably. know <laughs> yeah no, you totally no you're still yeah. gonna go to jail but you can jail. Just keep well, saying it it depends on who you steal it from you might not go to jail but that, you never know that it's might a, be a worst yeah. case scenario for you this is a difference in the way that no one in cybersecurity would ever say code is law. They'd be like, no, you're going to jail, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all um, right. The next one I want to talk about is a CISA story. They were talking about IOCs with Black Cat um, ransomware. Uh, Black that was Cat. Yep. Black Cat, Alfz, 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 Alf, I don't know. That's, whatever. And the reason why this one is interesting to me is a bunch of people are all excited about it uh, because it uses Rust. And it's getting old. I, I, I think it's funny because 
you know, over the years, you know, doing this, like most of the malware when I was out in the day, it was written in C, right? Some of it was written in raw assembly. And then there were people that were actually converting, you know, their Ruby scripts and Metasploit or Perl in the earlier versions and then converting that into an executable. And people were like, oh my God, it bypasses everything because the compilers don't know how to deal with this. And then you saw people that were taking Python scripts and then converting that in basically taking the entire Python interpreter and their scripts and embedding it inside of an executable. And they're like, oh my God. And then we had Golang. People were like, this is a brand new language and malware is written in and it can't actually be detected. <laughs> this isn't new. Like this is, this is one of the problems for me being old is I've seen this a number of times. <laughs> Um, and then it's the same crap's going to happen again. It's like, well, maybe we need to ban Rust because, you know, Rust <laughs> is being used in malware and only hackers seem to be using Rust. It's corrosive. And then the security community is like, what's this Rust thing? And <laughs> they get all excited about Rust and they talk about all the cool things. And then they're going to forget about Golang and they're going to write a whole bunch of malware in Rust. You're going to see a full C2 framework in Rust. You know, is there anything that's fundamentally different about this or... Is it just like this is the same thing repeating again and again? My take is there is that what this makes me feel like is it reminds you that a lot of code, especially defensive code, is built on age old technology and age old. And, and, And like that, it reminds this kind of stuff reminds you that like, oh, our EDR actually doesn't do a super great job of reading uh, the stack when it's allocated from Rust or Golang, where it does yeah. weird stuff and it moves the memory all over the place and it allocates stuff before it needs it. And it has all this JIT stuff and all like basically it's from my perspective, it's a reminder that like we still live in a world where it worked because it was Rust is like a thing you can say. And like it's actually <laughs> kind of scary. But I do, I mean, I agree with you that like you can't just be like, yeah, dude, it's 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 a sweet exploit because it's written in Rust. So it works yeah. perfectly. Like <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I guess old is new, new is old, classic. Well, and, but it also goes, okay, so, you know, this, so whenever you look at code, like in something like Ghidra or Ida, right, you see blocks of code. And you can see that this function begats this function, which calls another system library function, pulls that up, and, you know, it does all these different things. And whenever you're looking at a lot of antivirus projects, especially whenever they're trying to do heuristics analysis and not just pure statistic analysis, they do that type of block code analysis where they can go through the actual assembled code and they can see this is where this procedure preamble starts. This is where it ends. This is where this one starts. These are the offsets. This is how it can invoke and it can call. And it understands that at a low level. Now, whenever you scramble that code, if you go back to like Metasploit's MSF Venom for that, you know, you know we did it by hand. Um, you would try to avoid bad characters like 00FFAF, and you could use these programs like Shikataghan I to scramble your code so you wouldn't use those. And that completely screwed up heuristic analysis because those specific offsets and those specific bytecodes in assembly no longer worked. And then whenever you, you go through and you do something with like uh, the Python one was interesting because the actual malware itself would be referenced in text inside of the executable. And most antivirus products completely ignored anything that was text in an executable for years. So like the actual Python interpreter would run and then it would invoke the script and execute it. And the antivirus engines were like, it's text. I don't see that. <laughs> then when you go to Go, when you compile it, you can absolutely reverse engineer a Golang program, 
but the antivirus engines couldn't see into it from a heuristics perspective. The one thing I would really like to get you guys' opinions on is we've talked about how initial access is still relatively easy to bypass antivirus engines, right? A little bit of scrambling goes a long way to get you access and running, but everything you do after that fact still lights up EDRs and SIMs like a Christmas tree. And Corey, this is something you've spent a lot of time talking about at BHIS because those are two different things. Initial access, like if your pen testing firm shows up and like we were able to get code execution on a system, it's really not that impressive if they're able to move laterally and take over the entire domain, bypass your EDR and your SIM, that's fundamentally different and far more difficult. So can you kind of clarify on that? Because I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, code execution is a feature, right? If I can't open programs on my computer, how am I going to do my job? That's kind of required by most, you know, I mean, there are cases where it's like, I literally only need Chrome or whatever for my job, but that's rare. So yeah, I think that's the reason why most EDR and other products kind of allow that initial phase. It's also really difficult. Like you said, the heuristics factor is nearly impossible. You can have a payload that generates, modifies itself, puts files, encrypts them, decrypts them. There's a million ways to get around that kind of stuff. But if you just sit at the front door and say, if anyone comes through, I'm going to slap them. Like that's what they do with <laughs> LSAS. Basically, they're like, you don't come through that door. Oh, you're through. Okay, ban, payload deleted, burn it across the whole network, etc. So I will say, I do think that that is kind of the ace in the hole, I guess, when you're looking at a malware like this. If you're, if you're a company that has an EDR or XDR, whatever a DR product you can come up with, XFDR. has DR. Yeah, who knows? If you have this, you're not going to be worried about this malware because you're going to say our key systems have application whitelisting. Our key systems have these malware or these detections that are not centered around memory heuristics or file heuristics, but they're centered around crown jewels that if you touch them, bad things happen, which that's kind of the way that the products have moved. Obviously, there are still bypasses. There are still, I, I will say, I do think personally, like just running a lot of malware, people especially malware analysts, I think they're really look at everything in a C perspective. Everything looks at like a C or C++ or C sharp perspective where it's like, oh, so map view of section. That's like how you get memory, right? Or VX, VX Alec or whatever. There's like a million other ways that Rust does it. Or yeah, I'm Alec. I'm not a systems internal programmer, but okay. basically... I, I can you, say enough to make me sound smart, but I forgot most of it. I, the only <laughs> like DL Malik is Doug Leah's Malik. Uh, <laughs> basically, those products and analysts and everything is kind of set up to work around those functions. And I think you have to, we do have to collectively as an industry move, move away from that and say, yeah, like we, you know, we always talk about canaries. We talk about, you know, that kind of stuff. There are ways to sort of confirm malicious behavior that's easier than just being like, whoa, it's mapping memory in a weird way. Let's delete it or let's be scared. Like, yeah, I think I think Corey's right. Like we're, we're driving down this road where we're trying to figure out exactly what they're doing and some, oh, well, they did this new technique. We could find that new technique and this one other piece and we, oh, we could we could dude, find all of it, right? That is one of my pet peeves about reverse engineering malware. It drives me absolutely nuts. It's like the conversation is the exact same every time. Yeah. So this malware, I totally reverse engineered. I'm like, let me guess. It used HTTPS to communicate out to a C2 server. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it also had the ability for the execute commands on the operating system. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It also had the ability to set up like a relay from the attacker's computer to the inside of the network. Yeah. 
Yeah, how did, did you know? Did he use Windows? Because all malware does that. That's not new. But, but so, it was in Rust. You don't understand. All the libraries I had Rust to write. changed yeah. everything because all my detections were for Go. I, I had to write Go. a library just to read the the memory oh, map. I don't know I how took. to write in Rust. It's yeah, so yeah. Bad. I, I mean, yeah, it's we got to move away from that as a thing that we do. Like, if if this program sold millions from a company, absolutely dig it, dig into it, pull it apart, do it, do all your due diligence. But if it's just like Oh, something new just popped up in Virus Total. Like you can literally spend the rest of your life reverse engineering stuff from Virus Total and not get any useful inf insight oh, from it. I do think it's really funny though. So right now, like Cobalt Strike is like the number one agent to find, right? Like you, if your if your product doesn't detect Cobalt Strike, like what what are you even here for, right? It's because we bypass CDR with Cobalt <laughs> Strike for like three years, dude. That's why. All right, I know, I know. Like, but wait, listen, wait, if you dive too far for their for their evaluation, so now everyone's got to say that they detected a hundred percent of the miter evaluation. So oh, yeah. right, of course, yeah, yeah. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Guess what? Everyone's detecting uh, Cobalt Strike. And so we got two choices, right? We're going to make either a better Cobalt Strike or adapt it, change it, whatever, right? Or we're just going to move to the next product that you're not detecting. And that ended up being another piece too, right? Because you're not used to that. But the truth is going to Corey's main point is stop worrying about whether it's Cobalt Strike or Rust or Go or whatever and start focusing on like the things that attackers do, the malicious action, right? It is a really smart idea to say, hey, if anyone thing touches LSAS, you're probably bad, right? Like that's an easy alert, right? Yeah, I mean, does anyone know whether they got Omicron, Delta, Theta, Alpha? No, we just wore masks. Like <laughs> you can't, you, you don't know. You felt like crap for a couple of weeks or you had trouble breathing. Like, don't worry about it. Wear the, do whatever you got to do to prevent this from happening in the first place and to protect you know, your systems and stop worrying about, oh, the variant. Well, this is actually a variant of Zeus. We, we got to detect <laughs> Zeus. Put that in the list. Like, well, I will give you one example that somebody did that turned this entire thing on its ear. I can't remember what like brand of malware it was. Um, I think it was a crypto miner. And he realized that the crypto miners would look uh, for other crypto miners that were executing on the system and they would kill it if they saw it. So what he competition. did... Yeah, yeah, it was competition. competition for the resources on that, on that system. So I was talking with him about it, and he goes, so what I did is I reverse engineered some old crypto mining software, and he basically neutered it, and he pushed it to every single system in his environment, every single system in his environment. And then he did a check to see how many of those systems still had it running after an hour. And if it was gone... He knew that there was some type of like crypto miner on that system that was undetected. It's like the antimatter detection. Totally like, you know, setting up the antibodies and setting it around the entire environment. Yeah. And I'm like, this is like one of the most brilliant things ever. This needs to be a talk. And he's like, dude, I almost got fired because our CTO <laughs> was not amused. And I was like, damn, he gets points for creating. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's cool. Like, I love a good debrief. I love a I love a good. Here's how rans this ransomware does this. Here's what it does. Uh, don't get me wrong. Great <laughs> entertainment. But it isn't necessarily always actionable security intel. And I think we need to make sure that everyone. No, knows. and that's and that gets into one of my huge pet peeves about threat intel feeds. You know, I have been on the soapbox many times. If you're just buying hashes and and you're buying URLs and IP addresses, that's garbage. But if you can actually say post-exploitation, this is what the attackers do and can we detect it, that provides value. Uh, she, what is it, Shove, Shovel Joe, Shovely Joe, everyone provides 100% coverage during the attack evals. 
but never actually the configs, they're never actually for configs for the product that does the same degree in a prod environment. And I think that that's another key point is a lot of these products are configured in such a way that they're so locked down that like nothing is ever going to run. Yeah. And that is not what you see. Well, you can't use it. The accounting team needs macros. I mean, okay. there's, oh, okay, you allow application whitelisting. Okay, well, cool. That like all, even running app whitelisting or, you know, allow listing in, in high enforcement mode in most environments is like a years long process just to find all the binaries in the environment that should be running. I mean, oh. imagine that same thing, but with like EDRs, it's like, go. I mean, anyone can test this, find a product, put it in aggressive <laughs> mode, then try to do your job. You, <laughs> I, it, unless you work in Chrome all day, you're gonna get, I mean, you're. Okay, so this gets into like, you, you just kind of triggered me. We had a customer, you know, and a lot of that crap that happens, you know, like throwing everything in high enforcement mode down to the hash, to the executable, and don't allow inheritance uh, from parent to child processes. It's a nightmare. We had a customer who was like, we require in our environment every piece of code that runs to be digitally signed by a valid digital code signing certificate. And I was like, so you're literally running no software in your environment at all. Because um, not even Microsoft or Google have full digital code signing certificates uh, that are signing every single one of their dynamic link libraries and all their binaries. It's a hard freaking thing to do. You know, it's easier to say some of this crap than it is to actually do it and execute it properly. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's totally unnecessary standard. It's like if you went to your bank and they had buy, if you had to do biometrics just to walk in the door, you'd be like, "Is this a good bank? Like, this is <laughs> terrible. This is like, you know, I can't use PowerShell. Well, how do I even join a system to the domain? Like, I I can't even join a system to you know. It's just that. Oh. But All anyway, right. well, we should yeah. Let's move on to the next story. The next story is from the Hacker News. Atlason drops patches for critical critical vulnerability specifically an authentication bypass vulnerability. I don't know if this has been exploited in the wild, um, but looking at the CVE scoring, which Almost they gave it a 9.9 .9 out of 10. I, I'm still wondering, what Almost are they holding that 10 out for? Yeah. It, it's, not like, it's not like they're judging gymnastics. And they're like, ooh, ooh, this vulnerability, it really stuck the landing, Almost but somebody landed. better may come later. I'm going to give it a 9.9. If you pay for CVSS++, there's a guarantee you never get a 10. Yeah, yeah, that's the secret. You gotta be part, <laughs> the of, this, you you gotta be part of the organization. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm gonna ask because I'm not sure if you're joking. That's not. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I, I'm that's that, joking, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I missed kidding. something. There, there, there has to be some group though that prevents you from getting a ten. They're like, oh yeah, you just pay the monthly dues and you'll never have a ten. So all that <laughs> I just want to say, I also want to say this: every company that I've written up for exposing Jira, you're welcome. Because <laughs> you dude, shouldn't do right. that. You have customers that have constantly bitched about that finding. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, but you couldn't hack it, Corey. If you couldn't hack factor. it, why, it's two why factor. Is it, why is it? But if you couldn't break in, why is it a vulnerability on your report? Why does it have a risk rating of high or medium? Why did you do that? Defend your existence. It's not a management interface. We just use it for ticketing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so I, mean, um, I will say ticketing systems in general are high value targets, at least oh, from my sure. perspective, the amount yeah. of situational awareness you get. <laughs> I mean, I've actually there's an initial compromise I've done, which I've spoken about before. But basically, I got in the user self reported via Jira that they had been fished. I went in Jira, deleted the ticket, said, never <laughs> mind, my bad, uh, delete. So access to that ticketing system is a key part of that attack chain. If you don't yeah. have the ability to 
And also people put passwords in Jira. Oh, people they put litter them. They litter them with passwords. I don't know how many times I've got onto a Jira ticketing system and I just look up, I just do a search inside for password and all yes. those like, oh, we reset this machine. Here's the new Here's, password, yep, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, dude, it's nuts. Jira is a high value target. It should never be exposed to the internet. But yeah, I guess somehow it's running a cryptocurrency miner now. So, <laughs> so we're good. We're good. We're it's good. just crypto mine. I got to say, if you get hacked in this day and age, and it's just running a crypto miner. You got off easy. That's very yeah. true. That's yeah. like I broke um, my leg, but it was it was not a compound fracture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's healable. It's fine. It, yeah, you can recover from that. So I, I I don't know. This gets into like the larger question of these third party sources that we use internally for just making IT function. And I don't think enough firms, pen testing firms, go mm -hmm. after these types of resources. And it is absolutely something that every single testing firm, you know, what is the company using for their ticketing systems? If you can get access to that or even communication internally, um, it's a treasure trove and there's just an amazing amount of information you can get. Yeah, and we've even fished via ticketing systems too, you know, say, hey, I'm having trouble. I can't open this spreadsheet on my machine for some reason. Can you go ahead and give it a shot? You know, beacon received, right? Like yeah. um, <laughs> from, an IT, from an IT help desk admin that uses admin all the time because what if they need to change someone's password? They don't want to have to log in as their admin account. So, Well, and it, and it goes to everybody on that system. You're like, who all can open the spreadsheet? It's like they're all going <laughs> to try. Or better yet, what you can do is be like, hey, I think the spreadsheet has some malware. Can you guys check it out for me? <laughs> What? I mean, I think this, I mean, obviously this vulnerability gets to the point where all one session token away from accessing everything, right? Um, when it's just one big web interface. Yeah, wow. the time frame is scary on this one, right? Where they're like, this was actively exploited in the wild last year. <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> like, like, uh, what happened, guys? Uh, what, you know, why was the, what's the slow to patch? Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and that gets into one of the stories I dropped was the Botena Go malware targeting security cameras and DVR devices. And No, not security cameras. We don't have to hit that, but that gets into, you know, I, I wanted to tie it in. Oh, what the hell? Let's do this. Um, I'm going to give this to Jason real quick. Let's talk about this really quick because I think it ties into this stuff that not, we've been talking about. Not um, my cameras. I'll bring it up. Not the cameras. <laughs> um, you bent my DVR. So kind of tying this in with one that we started at the beginning of the show with the idea that more zero days have been used. This is not a zero day. This was patched. This vulnerability was patched two years ago, I think. And these devices are still being exploited. I think it kind of sort of answers the question of why are so many things getting exploited? I think the complexity is just monstrous. And this sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish, but the idea of gaining access to a workstation and pivoting in a domain is going away. And what I mean by that is everything's moving to the cloud one way or the other. Even with our engagements, almost all of our customers are now hybrid environments. And the idea of your standard Active Directory is going away. And when everything's running in the cloud, all of these third-party IoT devices are still in play. And you're absolutely going to have a greater attack surface just due to the complexity. And then the fact that that complexity is directly connected to the freaking internet. And then you're not getting patches through like, you know, Microsoft or Google or that. It's just this third party product they released on their webpage. They're like, oh, the new firmware has mm. a vulnerability that you all should check on. And we're not going to email or get a hold of anybody. Oh, Keep it quiet. Because our CVSS score was, uh, our CVE score was, uh, 
was 7.5 on this. Um, so you're just going to see these forever days that just linger out there for a long, long, long time. But does this kind of like, you know, am I, am I off base? Like seeing all the reports and what you all are doing, I'm seeing more and more of BHIS's exploitation shift from the endpoint and pivot to more and more and more being gain access to cloud resources. I mean, I w personally, as a red team operator, I would love something like this. It could just be a point of presence that isn't. I mean, I don't think DVRs typically run EDR. Um, <laughs> honestly, definitely. that might be the higher that might be the higher value. And we do hunt for that stuff. Like, find me something without CrowdStrike on it because it can't run CrowdStrike. <laughs> or yeah. find me, you know, find me something that can't be monitored or isn't easy to monitor because you can't just throw an agent on some DVR. Like, I don't think they wrote a custom, you know, NVIDIA, whatever chip they're using in these things, EDR program. So I think that's a big thing to mention, too, is that as we increase logging and we have all this amazing products that can log things on every Windows endpoint known to man. There's also devices that can't be monitored super effectively and IP camera shell code. We need this. All right. It's we not do gonna be that difficult. Or, you know, even if as long as I can get a network proxy working, that's good enough for me. I don't need <laughs> I don't need LSAS. I don't need any of that crap. I don't care about hashes. I don't care. You, just let as you know, because, you know, if that environment, they're like, oh, my God, it looks like somebody's running a Kerberos attack or, you know, they're running responder. Where, where is it coming from? It's coming from this video camera. Yeah, it's false fine. It's it's fine. It's, it probably required. Yeah, just <laughs> just filter it out of our sim. That's a false positive. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. ticket will be closed literally. Like the ticket notes will be FP closed, John Strand. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I mean, no. definitely one of the other things you talk about moving to the cloud is like, and I've thought about this a lot. IP, like we shouldn't ever be using source IP as like a factor. And I think a lot of companies are when you're talking about a hybrid cloud deployment, if you're coming from the corporate office, you're in no MFA, no problem, because you're at you're in you're safe. You're in you're the safe. office. It's conditional access. It's, Good it's conditions. Fine. It's fine. Conditional access. But if I if I have this compromised DVR and it nats to the same IP that your corporate network does, I can potentially bypass MFA. I can launch password guessing attacks. You're like, why is someone password guessing from inside? Oh, she just forgot her password again. <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff. A lot of people still it's like a, a thing people rely on old techniques and and looking at source ip is the one of the first techniques people do so it's like oh the source ip is for it's the, it's the voice is coming from inside the house or, or the call is coming from inside you know that's so keep that in mind if you're i mean hopefully it's not on your corporate network hopefully it doesn't nat to the same ip but oh my god it, it's dual it's like connected as two well it has two interfaces one for the internet one for the inside now we can access it from anywhere <laughs> <laughs> you can take that video call from you know anywhere and also it's allowed globally inbound because what if a video call comes in from shanghai or Good elsewhere point. you know you want those so, sweet, sweet video calls to come in you do so yeah. I, I mean obviously protect your iot stuff and honestly can we, i'm just gonna say can we just make out of band automatic updates it it doesn't even have that to be out of band that in should be band like in band automatic updates should be a feature if you are an it admin purchasing a product yeah automatic secure yes automatic yes. security patches so that you don't have to oh well saturday morning we go in and reboot all the webcams no no, no. one does that no it needs to be automatic if it's not automatic it's not happening and yep. so choose that as a feature that is a requirement i would it personally normalize it yeah because yeah. that's yeah. like the equivalent of like having ssh right versus telnet right like you would that that device if it can't support ssh you might be like god ah, probably don't want this right same with automatic updates right if it can't have automatic updates i probably don't want this this is the very this is a much much less secure device 
And then the last point too, and I think someone brought it up in chat, segmentation, right? Like segmentation, <sighs> segmentation. It's not as easy to do, but it's really, really, really easy with all the web cameras, right? Or the, you know, the, the security cameras. That's an easy one to do, right? I mean, um, hell, I can do that with my firewall device. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I can <laughs> still steal your net and abuse your conditional access policy. So, you know, I can keep that in mind. But yeah, yeah. even yeah. If, depending on how it's segmented, that. obviously. I hate yeah. doing that with commercial products that cost hundreds or thousands of dollars. It's like, <laughs> this doesn't even have the feature my firewall does. Like, and it was a hundred bucks and it's this no, 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 big. they have it. It's an extra license though. You just it's have to go on license. and get it. Yeah. 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 All right. So the last that. story um, I want to talk about um, isn't really a computer security story at all, but we've been talking a lot about Ukraine and this is a charity. One of our own at Black Hills Information Security Active Countermeasures, our lead data scientist, Lisa Woody, um, is from Ukraine. And this is a charity specifically in her, in her hometown where she was born. And I've been in contact with Lisa quite a bit, not as much as I should be, but um, her family, uh, her cousins, her aunts and her uncles are actually like held up in a shelter in a steel mill in this town in Ukraine. And it made it on the news in Russia saying that this is where Ukraine and the United States were doing human experiments for like chemical weapons. It's, it, it's something that they're going to literally start targeting. But this is one of those charities that is Ukrainian. It's basically by people that we know at Black Hills Information Security. And I would strongly encourage you, if you are listening to this at any time, please continue to give because this is, this is, this is stuff that's going directly to the people in Lisa Woody's hometown. And if you guys, if you all can help out Lisa Woody and her family just a little bit, every little bit is greatly appreciated. So. So that's it. That's all I got for the stories. As I said, please, if you could like and subscribe, some magic happens. I don't quite know what. Um, but we greatly appreciate it. Um, Smash the like, some... ring the bell, do it all. We have another kind of announcement. Um, I don't know how many of you all like this that are listening, the, the BHIS talking about news, <laughs> but we decided we liked it so much that we're starting up something new. If you notice, um, Restream says live from BHIS and Anti-Siphon Studios. Anti-Siphon is our training organization. And beginning tomorrow, we're going to be starting live streams, not news, but live streams, very short, dense, 30-minute live streams, where it's all technical content from the instructors at Anti-Siphon. And those will all be live. They will be free. This week, I have Jonathan Hamm on deck. We're going to do a three-on-three, where I come up with three network threat hunting things, and he comes up with three network threat hunting things. We toss them back and forth, rap battle style. And the one on Wednesday, B.B. King and I will be hosting a mini CTF, a flash CTF, if you will. Um, so be on the lookout for that. So, yeah, we're quickly becoming one of those shows that's on every day because that's what I need. <laughs> <laughs> it will be streamed to YouTube. We're going to be starting up a new stream for Anti-Siphon. And we also will be on Twitch. Uh, the host just shared the link on that. So we'll be doing that as well. Yeah, we suck at capitalism. It's all like, like I said, we've got to come up with a better name uh, than marketing, but it's all content and community. We're basically trying to, you know, make people better at their jobs and every once in a while mention some of the cool stuff that we do. So that's it, folks. That's all we got for today. So with that, Jason, can you take us out with the crooked finger alien hand? Uh, <laughs> 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 Woo!